Welcome to Mercy House University's podcast, and we are in episode five of our series, How God Explains Everything. And we've had a little bit of a hiatus, as uh, I'm sure a lot of you have had, but we're back at it. And in this episode, we want to look at uh, an, an argument from design. It's similar in some respects to the last argument that we looked at. That argument was looking at how God explains some facts about the whole universe, some facts that are involved in physics uh, that make it look like the universe is designed. This argument is going to look at how God explains some facts in biology, some facts that make it look like organisms are designed. So there are some similarities between the arguments. Uh, they're kind of about different domains of science, though. And Justin's going to take us through this argument today. So Justin, why don't you take it away? Cool. Yeah, so we're thinking about the biological design argument. And this is one of the traditional arguments for the existence of God, uh, at least as far as like the last two or three centuries of tradition have gone, but arguably it's versions of it are even older than that. And the basic thought behind um, the biological design argument is that, hey, look, you know, living things are complex in certain ways uh, that make it the case that um, a designer, a supernatural designer of some sort, a god of some sort, uh, you might think is the best explanation of why there are uh, life exists. The biological design argument was really popular a couple of centuries ago. Um, it is still popular, I think, in certain like circles of lay people today. Um, it's not so popular, though, in the academic world these days. And I think that the main reason for this is the theory of evolution. The attitude in much of academia today is that uh, evolution, now that we know that um, life evolves, that this basically undermines the biological design argument. That argument is, has been refuted. It no longer has any force. I think that that's actually mistaken. Um, I think that the strongest versions of this argument are uh, untouched by evolution. They're just totally neutral about evolution. But we'll get back to evolution later uh, because um, we want to start with just the basic idea of the argument. Yeah, that's really important because actually when you get into discussions of philosophy of science where philosophers are talking about science, one of the questions in philosophy of science is what's the difference between science and pseudoscience, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the examples of pseudoscience I've often seen listed is intelligent design. People who are looking at uh, this question about whether biological life provides evidence of intelligent design. And some people are just taking it as a starting point that that, that has to be pseudoscience. Uh-huh. And so importantly, the version of the biological design argument that I'm going to outline today uh, doesn't have to resist evolution at all in any right. sense. Great. So isn't there like a famous version of this argument that has something to do with like a watch and a watchmaker or something like that? Right, there is. Yeah. So um, there was an 18th century Christian apologist named William Paley who uh, came up with this clever thought experiment that has become famous in, the, uh, in, in discussions of the design argument. And so let me give you a version of that thought experiment. 
So suppose that you're walking around in nature and you come across uh, an object on the ground that you don't recognize. Now this object is a pocket watch, but, but pretend that you know, you've never heard of a pocket watch before, you've never seen a pocket watch before, so you don't know right away what it is. And so you pick up this, this item that you just found lying on the ground out in nature and you begin to examine it. And you notice that it has a bunch of different parts. And in fact, it seems like a fairly complex object. You know, if you break it open, it's got a whole bunch of, of um, gears and cogs inside. And you also begin to notice that the way that the parts of this thing are arranged seems pretty special. Um, it seems special in this sense, that it's because the parts are arranged in the way that they are, this object has a certain kind of value. It has a valuable function, uh, namely it's useful for keeping track of time. But if you messed too much with the arrangement of those parts, it would lose that value it would no longer be able to form or perform that function. Um, now, this property is sometimes called specified complexity, which is a term that, I, as far as I know, was invented by contemporary intelligent design folks. Um, but Paley, uh, and at least one interpretation, drew attention to this property way back in, um, what was it, the 1700s, in this thought experiment. And what Paley does is he points out that as you examine the watch and you notice that it has these features, you're going to come to the conclusion that this watch was designed by some agent. You're going to infer that there was an agent that was aiming to put together an object that had this kind of valuable function. And that agent is responsible for the existence of this object. Well, so Paley thought, look, um, that's really interesting because if you uh, turn from like artifacts like a watch to consider things in the natural world like organisms and their parts, uh, organs and cells and so on, you will find similar sorts of uh, things. You'll find some of the same features in the watch that lead us to suspect that the watch was designed. So um, to take just uh, um, an example that's gotten a lot of attention in over the years in like creation evolution discussions, consider the mammalian eyeball. Uh, the eyeball is, uh, it's got a lot of parts. It's got a pupil and an iris and a retina and a lens and rods and cones and some kind of wiring that hooks it up to the brain. It, you know, it's got a whole bunch of different parts and those parts are arranged in a certain way. And it seems like the way that they're arranged is very special. It enables the eye, it makes the eye valuable because it gives it a valuable function. It, it enables, you know, the thing whose eye it is to see. And that value depends on the arrangement of the parts, right? You, you couldn't just have like a, a random pile of eyeball parts and, you know, that would, that would be able to see. Um, that, of course, isn't going to work. But also, we know that even if you just, you know, damage the eye in certain ways, um, sometimes even apparently mild ways, that can cause blindness. So we have here a very, very special arrangement of parts. And this is similar to the watch in that, you know, we've got a, a complicated object where the arrangement of its parts is both complicated and like very, very specific for realizing a certain kind of value. And so Paley thinks, look, if it's reasonable to infer that the the watch was made by a watchmaker, then it's reasonable to infer that these things in nature, including like organisms and their parts, were also designed by some sort of agent. 
Uh, okay, so that's uh, the basic idea of Paley's argument. Just as an aside, well, most of Paley's work was published in the 1700s, but the watchmaker argument was originally published in 1802. Oh, okay, thanks. In his book, Natural Theology, or Evidences of the Existence and Attributes of the Deity Collected from the Appearances of Nature. <laughs> yes. They're Use that they're... as inspiration for a good you know, book title or dissertation title or something like that. <laughs> right. So thinking of the sort of the, the blind watchmaker response, what would you say to the distinction between sort of self-replicating animate objects uh, like biological creatures and how that might be different from inanimate objects like a watch, which is clearly not, is not self-replicating? Yeah. So uh, are you, you going to deal with that in terms of evolution? Yeah, well, so we'll get we'll get back to evolution um, in a bit. But are you thinking like, hey, look, here's an important potential difference between Paley's uh, the watch in Paley's example and like a living thing? Um, living things are like self-replicating, and a, a pocket watch isn't. Is that what you're thinking? Yeah. So like, this is Dawkins' blind watchmaker thesis. So sort of his response to Paley saying these are okay. not these are not comparable things. One is inanimate right. and not self-replicating the other one is right good yeah so there are some worries about paley's argument that are along these lines um that I just say like well uh you know maybe the the watch and like the living things or their parts are not actually uh analogous enough or in the right ways in order to make this argument work uh there are also worries about whether the properties that of the watch that paley highlighted are the uh, properties or even just the only properties leading us to infer design. Some people think there might be um, other properties of the watch that, that are grounding that inference. So there are a number of worries you might raise about Paley's argument. What I actually want to do is circumvent all of them by presenting a different version of the biological design argument, one that's definitely indebted to uh, versions like Paley's, but doesn't depend on an analogy between artifacts and living things. So let me give you a very simple argument um, uh, that's a little bit different from Paley's. It'll just have two premises and a conclusion. Premise one, life appears to be designed. Premise two, if life appears to be designed, then it is designed. Conclusion, Life is designed. Okay, now that might see, seem like a, a supremely naive argument, but actually I think it turns out to be a really powerful one. Let me explain why. We'll take, a, we'll take it one premise at a time. So the first premise just says that life appears to be designed. And all I mean by that is that a lot of, something like this, that a lot of people, when they're considering like the biological details of life, uh, tend to have design impressions. They tend to have experiences where the, the, the living thing that they're considering or some feature of it just sort of strikes them involuntarily as though it's designed. And this is, um, this is something that you hear 
uh, people reporting, not just people who are sympathetic to the, the biological design argument, not just people who are theists or already believe in God. You even get this from people who are notorious critics of the biological design argument. So, for example, probably the most famous philosophical critic of the design of design arguments generally is David Hume. And Hume, in his book Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion, um, Hume says, uh, well, so in that book, it's a dialogue between a number of characters that he's invented, but the character that uh, seems most closely aligned with Hume's own views, at one point in the dialogue makes this comment. He says, consider, anatomize the eye, survey its structure and contrivance, and tell me from your own feeling." If the idea of a contriver does not immediately flow in upon you with a force like that of sensation. All right, so that's uh, from Hume's dialogues. Um, Charles Darwin, the inventor of the theory of evolution, is uh, there's an interesting story about him that was quoted by the Duke of Argyle. Um, the uh, Duke of Argyle writes this he says, in the course of that conversation, I said to Mr. Darwin, with reference to some of his own remarkable works and various observations he made of the wonderful contrivances of certain purposes in nature, I said it was impossible to look at these without seeing that they were the effect and the expression of mind. I shall never forget Mr. Darwin's answer. He looked at me very hard and said, well, that often comes over me with overwhelming force, but at other times, and he shook his head vaguely, adding, it seems to go away. So that's an interesting little passage where it, it seems like Darwin uh, is, is saying that, yeah, on and off, he has these sorts of experiences of like life just seeming or like striking him as designed. Doesn't always have it, but sometimes apparently he does. And then similarly, um, uh, Richard Dawkins, if I'm remembering correctly, in his book, The Blind Watchmaker, uh, you know, he's very critical of, of Paley's argument and similar design arguments in that book. But if I'm remembering correctly, one of the things he does concede in that book, it, it, he actually says, uh, uh, this is going to be uh, either an exact quote or close to it, that life gives the appearance of being designed for a purpose. Um, so you get some really uh, influential critics of design arguments conceding or acknowledging that, in fact, sometimes we get really powerful design impressions from life. Okay, uh, and so I think that's a pretty good reason to think that premise one is true. All right, uh, premise two says that if life appears to be designed, then it is designed. Now, you might think, well, that's a silly premise because, of course, we all know that appearances can be deceiving. But actually, all that means is that the premise isn't like a necessary truth or a logical truth. It, you know, it doesn't just, it's not just true automatically. Nevertheless, it might in fact be true if the appearances give us good reason to think that life was designed. And I think that they do. So there is a, uh, a view in philosophy um, that I think is probably right, and it goes something like this. It says that uh, when things appear to be a certain way, it's rational to take them to be that way, 
to say, yep, things are the way that they appear to be. Unless you have a reason for thinking that in that particular case, the appearances have like a, a decent chance of being misleading. All right, so that's a very rough statement of a certain view in philosophy. But to illustrate the point, like, so right now, there's a laptop computer in front of me. Or at any rate, there appears to be a laptop computer in front of me. Now, it's possible that that appearance is misleading. It's possible that I'm just hallucinating this laptop. That's always a possibility. Um, but if I were to therefore say, oh, well, then I don't really know if there's a laptop in front of me, you would probably think I was kind of strange. Uh, at any rate, you, you would think I was being irrational. It seems like what we expect rational people to do is to take things to be the way that they appear to be, unless they've got some evidence that the appearances in a particular case uh, have like a decent chance of being misleading, right? So if I just took a hallucinogenic drug, then I might be uh, irrational to just trust the appearance of a laptop. I, I maybe shouldn't take that for granted. But since I know I didn't just take a hallucinogenic drug, it seems to me entirely rational for me to believe that there is a laptop in front of me simply because there appears to be one. Well, similarly, in the case of life, if it appears to be the case that life is designed, if life sort of strikes us that way, then unless we have some specific evidence uh, that... Um, unless we have some evidence to think that we're being misled by that appearance, some reason to think that, yep, you know, the, the appearance of design in life is in fact misleading, it seems the rational thing to do is to take things to be the way that they appear. We should take life to be designed because it appears that way. All right, and so that I think is a reason to think that premise two is true. So I think we've talked about this with sort of scientific theories before where you sort of have a dominant theory and then you slowly get more and more evidence maybe for a different explanation and eventually there's like a tipping point, right? I think for a lot of people, evolution seemed to be that tipping point. Um, yeah. So it, obviously everything's designed. There must be God. No question about that. And then once you started, once you actually had an alternative explanatory theory to explain how we got certain types of features or um, biological systems, then you could say, okay, well, maybe we don't need God anymore. Um, so what, how do we take into account evolution and does this, uh, how does evolution, yeah, how does evolution play into this? Yeah, good. So, um, I mean, one way of putting the worry that I think you're suggesting here is that you might think evolution gives us a reason to think that the appearances of design in life are misleading appearances. So I just claimed in support of premise two that, well, look, we should take things to be the way that they appear until we have evidence that the, the appearances are misleading or something like that. And, and you're uh, suggesting it, like, well, wait a minute, could evolution be evidence that the appearances are misleading? Right, okay. So um, I think that this objection is not correct. I think that evolution does not give us a reason to think that life was not designed nor that the appearance of design in life is misleading uh, or anything like that. And to explain why, I'm going to borrow another thought experiment, this time from a philosopher named Michael Murray. 
So uh, Murray has a paper called Natural Providence or Design Trouble that was published a number of years ago. And there's a really clever thought experiment in here that I think is really helpful for seeing why evolution does not threaten uh, at least some versions of the biological design argument, including the one that I've laid out. Here's his thought experiment then. I'm going to quote, quote it. He says, imagine that I invite you and two other friends to my home for a friendly game of high stakes poker. In order to ensure the integrity of the game, I propose that we play each hand with a freshly opened deck of pre-shuffled cards. After five hands of five-card stud, you grow suspicious. The reason, I have won every pot with a hand of four aces. Convinced that I'm cheating, you set out to figure out how I have done it. You look up my sleeve, my pant leg, under my hat, all to no avail. It becomes clear to you that I did not break the rules by unfairly adding cards to or removing cards from my hand during the game. All attempts to discover signs of intervention during the course of the game come up empty. What should you conclude? Perhaps one might conclude that no rules of poker playing were violated during the course of the game, and thus there was no cheating after all. No contravention of the rules during the game, no cheating. One of the other losers is, however, not convinced by such reasoning. While it might be true that there was no cheating by intervention, there are other ways to manipulate the game to get the favored outcome. How? The answer is, of course, easily discovered in the neatly stacked pile of new pre-shuffled decks, in scare quotes there, at the edge of the table. Upon examining the first, we notice that the, among the cards at the top of the deck, every fourth one is an ace. The jig is up. All I had to do is control certain initial conditions, i.e. who dealt the hands, and I would be a guaranteed winner. Okay, so that's Murray's thought experiment, and here's the uh, at least one of the lessons that he draws from it. So in this case, um, the outcome of, you know, me getting four aces over and over again looks suspicious. Uh, you know, the people playing with me think, okay, I'm not just getting lucky. That didn't just happen by chance. That happened by design, so to speak. I'm cheating. And so they begin to investigate, like, okay, how am I cheating? How did I pull this off? And they find that I haven't intervened uh, in the course of the game. I haven't broken any rules during the game. The game has followed rules from beginning to end, have followed all the rules from beginning to end. Um, but at that point, it, it doesn't seem reasonable to infer, oh, never mind, I wasn't cheating after all, I just got super lucky. Rather, the reasonable inference seems to be that um, even if I didn't cheat by intervention, I did cheat in a different way, in a deck stacking way. So Murray distinguishes between these two different ways in which agents can deliberately engineer an outcome that they're aiming for either by intervention on the one hand or by deck stacking on the other hand. And he carries this over to the case of God designing life. Suppose that life strikes us as being designed. And then suppose that we learn by discovering that the theory of evolution is true, that life has not been designed by a supernatural intervention into the natural world. Should we conclude that, oh, no, never mind, it wasn't really designed at all? Well, no, it seems like just like in, the, in the, the card game case, the reasonable thing to conclude at this point is not that life wasn't designed after all, but that it wasn't designed by intervention. It was rather designed by deck stacking. 
And so the thought here is that, well, God could design life without intervening in the world by instead setting up the world from the beginning in such a way that if it just sort of naturally played out according to the laws that God put in place, uh, life would sort of automatically develop the way that God intended it to or something like that. Um, and so it seems to me that the lesson of evolution is not that life wasn't designed. It's merely that it wasn't designed in an interventionary way, but rather in a deck stacking way. Um, and if that's the case, then evolution poses absolutely no threat to uh, the biological design argument. Uh, what do you guys think about that? So uh, we've been talking, or in this particular instance, we're looking at sort of the intuition of appearance. Um, yeah. And I wonder, thinking about tying this into like maybe how probability would play into that, or just that being another element of the conversation, like the, the probability of having four, you know, aces in a row mm -hmm. is just highly improbable. Um, and is that sort of a similar argument we're making, like to see these particular kinds of outcomes is very, in a sense, unprobable that we'd get this level of complexity with this sort of out, you know, that in this kind of function. So is there an element of probability to that or is it just appealing to the intuition? Of yes. So um, by appealing to the intuition or maybe it's like a perceptual sort of experience or something like that, which is because that, you know, that's the way like Hume seemed to describe it, for example, but whatever it is, the idea there was in a way to kind of get around the whole subject of like, well, what exactly is it about living things that makes them seem designed? Um, because it seems like the important fact is just that they seem designed and it's, it's less crucial exactly what it is. And, and that's an advantage, I think, that the version of the argument I gave has over maybe Paley's version of the argument, or at least on some readings where it focuses in on certain properties. But it is an interesting question, like, okay, well, what exactly is it about living things that gives us those design impressions? And it could be that probability is part of the story. In fact, it, it likely is. Um, it, it, it's likely that you know, the probability of getting a certain kind of arrangement of biological matter, um, a kind that has the special sorts of features that life has, as opposed to a kind that doesn't, might be much, much greater um, on the hypothesis of design than on an alternative hypothesis, like where it's just a matter of chance that we ended up with a universe that would actually generate life through some kind of an evolutionary process or whatever. Yeah. Uh, is that what you were thinking though? Yeah. I think that was sort of along, along the lines that I was thinking. I mean, cause, cause part of your second premise was, you know, it's rational to sort of take things out of appearances unless we have really good reason otherwise. Yeah. And so I think a probability as being part of that, uh, my, my natural explanation for something is going to be what's most probable. Like, oh, I see this thing happening this way. Uh, I'm going to assume that this is how it happened. You know, if I see a car crash on the side of the road, I'm going to assume that, you know, somebody was texting and driving. I'm not going to assume that like an alien spaceship suddenly showed up and like zapped them. <laughs> right, yeah. right. Now the latter is possible, but it's really down my list of <laughs> down the list of explanations. Right. Um, <laughs> And I need quite a bit of evidence to to get me to move towards that explanation instead of the first one. So that, that's more I, that's what kind of how I was thinking about the the way probability affects 
how we order our explanations and why we would take something at, at first appearance right. to be the most likely explanation. So I guess one last thing, Justin, uh, we've got, we've gotten the structure of this argument in place. Uh, the idea that if life appears to be designed, then it's, we ought to assume that it is unless there's a good reason not to. Um, but why should we assume that the designer is God? How do yeah. we get there? Good. Um, so here, I think uh, it's helpful to point out that a designer of life would have to have uh, certain properties. It would have to be uh, pretty powerful and knowledgeable in order to be responsible for designing uh, living things. Because, I mean, if you think about it, like we human beings haven't succeeded at this yet. We haven't succeeded at designing, as far as I know, even like the simplest sorts of living things. Um, you might also think it would have to be a transcendent being because if you were to say, and some people have said this, that, oh, well, life on Earth, for example, was just created by extraterrestrial life of some sort. Um, well, then, and this is the standard response to this kind of worry is, well, you're just sort of pushing the problem back because now we got to know where the extraterrestrial life comes from and so on. You might think then in order to find like an ultimate explanation of the existence of biological life, you need a non-biological designer. Um, and so uh, whatever is the designer of life then is going to have to have certain traits like being pretty intelligent, pretty powerful, and perhaps even in some sense transcendent. Um, and those are all among the traditional divine perfections. And so using the kind of uh, inference that we talked about in the very first episode of the series, you might argue that the best explanation of why the designer of life has all those perfections is that it has all perfections. And so um, that gets you to the conclusion that the designer of life is a perfect being, which is how we've traditionally conceived of God. Great. That's a nice way to add to our cumulative case. Absolutely. So we started off with the idea that life appears to be designed. We looked at uh, William Paley's version of the design argument, but then we looked at a simplified version, just that if since life does appear to be designed, we ought to assume that it is, unless we have a good reason to think otherwise. And we looked at how we can square that idea with evolutionary theory and how to respond to some objections and how uh, the best explanation of the idea that there is a powerful designer is that that powerful designer has all the perfections that somebody could have. That is to say that that designer is God. Uh, so we'll see you next time on Mercy House University's podcast. <laughs> <laughs>